All right. Hey, Madakiapi, we're inviting you back. This is the fourth episode. The last story we had was with Ron and Carol Brown Otter of Standing Rock. They just have so many stories, we decided to share some more. So, but before we get into that, I have some updates on what's going on with Makoche. Makoche Agricultural Development is developing a thriving local food system on Pine Ridge with support from a 2.5 million community innovation grant from the Bush Foundation. With this funding, we'll be able to focus on increased access to sustainable, produced food while creating economic development opportunities that can help to heal our communities and the land itself. This funding will support each of Makoche Agricultural Development's five initiatives. A regenerative production farm that cares for the land while supporting a new generation of local food producers. The Ocheti Shakoi Food Alliance, an advocacy-focused entity that will identify needed changes in tribal policies and food codes and work to expand land access policies for native producers. The Lakota Food Systems Institute, which will provide community members with training in culinary, nutritional, and farming production skills and preserve knowledge of traditional Lakota food and culture. The Makoche Food Hub will provide local businesses and community members with shared space to shop, learn, collaborate, and expand market access. Hemp production infrastructure to demonstrate and leverage hemp's diverse uses and value and increase opportunities for emerging hemp producers. We're grateful for the early supporters, including the Bush Foundation. We invite you, our community, and others interested in joining us, creating a local food system for our community and the generations to come. All right, let's get into it. This is how our story starts. If you weren't here for the first podcast, I should give you a heads up. This conversation was held at Ron and Carol's house at their table on the Standing Rock Reservation. His family was there. My family was there. So there are points in this conversation where you might hear a lot of us talking, but I promise you, it's worth the listen. So it was a typical Lakota household conversation. So we had a COVID scare. What had happened was is that we had some friends that we were visiting, and it was following that we went to see Ron and Carol and... That was whenever our friends that we had visited previously had told us that they are, they had come down with COVID, COVID nineteen. This wasn't after. This wasn't until after we had visited them, though, that we found out that we had been around people who had tested positive for COVID. Right. So the first thought in my head was that I was afraid that if we caught it, we would take it to Ron and Carol. And it, it was devastating for me because mm-hmm. I thought there was a potential. And man, that was the worst feeling ever because Ron and Carol had opened up their home to us, sat down with us, visited us, cooked for us, Carol cooked for us. Um, and we had this really great visit and then getting back home and finding out that we were around people who had tested positive for COVID. Right. And I think one of the, the things that we did that was very smart is that we let Ron and Carol know right away without hesitation of what the backlash with that was going to be. 
But the feeling behind it was just like almost disappointment in myself because we were potential carriers, I guess. Right. Although we didn't test positive for COVID because we kept testing, um, testing positive. We kept testing for COVID and, yeah, was- and there was no, um, it was negative, but still the thought that we could have taken COVID up there to them. Yeah, that was a scary thought. It was pretty devastating. Right. I, I, thankfully, everybody came out okay on this. Uh, like, like, like you said, we came out negative. And then Ron and Carol, we saw them a few weeks later at the... Buffalo Producers Meeting. That uh, Tonka Fund sponsored. And uh, that's why we thought that it would be good to hear the rest of Ron and Carol's story. Yeah. Out West. We haven't even touched that one. Rock Creek. They got their own buffalo herd. We started that for the for the community. Rock Creek? Yeah. Really? What is that? They got uh, community. our community of bullet. Oh, okay. So oh, they got Rock Creek? like two hundred and fifty to three hundred buffaloes right now. Wow. They got their own buffalo fence put in. Uh-huh. Um, Those ones that made his fence made that fence. Yeah. For the really? Yeah. So wow. he taught them. Where is that at? Jeez, that's, that's out west, probably an cool. hour and a half okay. west of here. The tribe, we, when I was on council, we paid it off that ranch. I was on the econ committee, huh. the land committee. Huh. So we bought some ranches, they bought another one out there next to it. So we have part of that national grasslands there too, that comes mm. with the ranch, like a couple thousand acres. Wow, really? And they only pay like dollar pennies. For each animal to to graze that, huh? Compared to us here, we pay like uh, seventeen dollars um, an AUM. So what does, what does that mean? The Indian Land Tenure Foundation. You ever heard of them? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I was. They asked me to be on that board, so I put in for it, and they selected me. So I was on it for four years. And the first meeting I went to, they go to meet quarterly meetings all over the United States. We got board members from all over the different tribes. So the meeting, first meeting I went to was Lake Tahoe, right? So I'm in Lake Tahoe and we're at the table, big table, and we have a big binder like that. At every meeting we always get stuff we have to prove, to, you know, different things going on. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, I had it open, I was reading. It says, this one page says, tried to call rancher, wants to convert cattle to buffalo but he never returns our calls left several messages I looked at um, the executive director Chris Stainbrook I said what is this he told me he said yeah this rancher guy wants to convert to buffalo but can't get a hold of him won't return our calls I said why are you wasting your time I said my community wants to raise buffalo we got a big ranch we bought the tribe leased it to us mm-hmm. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, okay, the money's yours. Wow. We got $200,000 to build that perimeter fence as a grant. Wow. So anyway, after the meeting, (laughs) I called our community district office. My brother and those guys like sitting around talk about what they had to do the next day or that day or whatever, plan. I really miss those times. But uh, a lot of those guys are dead or moved on. So I called my brother in the district office and 
he answers the phone. What you guys doing? Um, we're just talking about how we're going to fence that buffalo pasture out on Shambo Ranch. Really? I said, well, I said, the new board I'm on, I said, we discussed you 200000 for your buffalo fence. He said, nah, kidding. Nah. <laughs> he played a joke on me, right? <laughs> I said, no. I said, it's the truth. And I told him what happened, my discussion with Chris Stainbrook. He said, really? I said, yeah. He said, oh, man, we were just talking about it. where we can get the money from. And you called. <laughs> That's another miracle right there. Yeah. Oh, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, know. I know all about those. I love those. Yeah, so now it's fit. It's done. Yeah. Money got spent, bought the material, hired the labor, food, everything, put the fence in. Done. Now there's 250 to 300 buffaloes out there. Nice. That's amazing. You guys ever heard of Catalina Island? Yeah. Up off the coast of uh, California. Why is that? I have a friend there named Debbie Avalana. Isn't there buffalo on it? And she was always an animal rights person for Catalina Island. She, they were military used to bomb the northern side of the island right. where there was goats and buffalo. So a lot of them were getting killed from the bombing. And so anyway, she's like, we got to save the goats, we got to save everything, buffaloes, whatever. Anyway, she told the board, because she knows all of them, she lives there, that uh, Catalina Island Conservancy. Yeah. She said, these buffaloes, if you're going to get rid of any, they need to go back to the, the, the original people that used them, the Indian people. Right. So she found out about me and uh, us, me and Carol, and said, uh, basically, that's, that's where the buffalo are going to go, any that they give back. Yeah. So... Out of that, we got 251 free buffalo. 251? Wow. They delivered them. Ron, Ron how do you transport a bull? How do you transport? Because, like, I mean, every producer that I've ever talked to, they, they, it's almost like, I don't know, how do you do it? It's almost like it's impossible. Not impossible. Right. Get a chance before you leave. Take a look at that horse trade over here. Okay. The one I use. Yeah. Sitting away over here. That oh. particular one has um, steel. It's all steel. It's not aluminum. Oh. It has two two steel plates in it. One on the inside, one on the outside, and then your frame in between. So a buffalo, if you can imagine how big it gets. Yeah. Because how high from the floor up to that steel plate from there to the bottom of the floor of the trailer it's probably about that high yeah through the whole thing and you got the bar a bar going across and the top so those buffaloes a lot of them they're not that tall so their heads are down so they'll just stand there yeah because they can't see nothing yeah so they're good to go yeah even a bull a big bull. I mean, he can lift his head up higher to look out, but other than that, he just his head down. calms him down. Those two steel plates, they might put a little bit of dent on the inside, very little, 
but it won't come out on this side. It's all smooth. Huh, I'll have to check it out for sure. Yeah, that's yeah. what we use. I was just I was just wondering because like I every produce they're not big producers though, they're fairly small. Uh, all the ones that I've ever worked with are fairly small. But that was the issue, like they didn't know how to trans I mean they have issues transporting bowls. No no I don't know. I mean I've never actually seen it in an operation so I don't know how hard it is. Yeah, I think it's the trailer. Gotta have a big trailer with steel plates like we got. Mm. Another you know I was you know, I, I really want to pick your brain about some of these things. Like, like for example, <clears throat> like, is, is managing them, like, is there anybody else doing it like you do? That's what I want to know. Is anybody else managing your buffalo like you do? Yeah, the land is important. Right. You gotta have grass. You know, so much grass for each animal to be content. They're a herd animal, so they got they want to travel in a bunch. Yeah. How they, they feel protected or evolved or whatever. So they like moving in a bunch. I don't know if you've seen them all coming in. Yeah. They're all on the east side by the gravel road. That's probably eighty percent of them right there. Like so, that. Those right the now they're starting to rot breeding re, <laughs> season. Yeah. So it's the most dangerous time. <laughs> Why is that? Because they'll chase you. The bulls oh, are really out of there. <laughs> they'll stomp you in the ground. Really? They just don't want you in there? They don't want you messing around with them while they're doing their business. Wow. I had a close call once, you know, with my ATV. I was even on the outside the fence. Just riding the fence line. But there was a cow and heat and a buff, big bull right next to her. They're probably 10 feet off the fence. Yeah. And I'm coming on the outside of that fence with my ATV. That bull put his tail up and he charged right for that fence, right? I thought he was going to come through that fence. Yeah. Man, I just zoomed, man. I was waiting for nothing. I just reacted. Get the hell out of there. Like now. Yeah. Like, he sped up like that. Maybe what? 15, 20, 25 feet, then I looked behind and see if he was behind me. But he had stopped right at that fence. But I wasn't waiting around to see if he was yeah, going right. to that or stop <laughs> or not that stupid. Whenever I always tell these guys this story, uh, I, was, I think I was 15 or 14, I remember we were making our um, the buffalo pasture fence for the, the, the Iron Cloud Ranch. And uh, so I was helping build the fence, and man, it was really difficult. One of the hard, hardest. I learned about blisters. And uh, anyway, we were, we were doing this fence. We were about like three fourths of the way done. And I remember uh, Chug was our the, the leader. He was telling us, you know, he, he instructed us. I just laid wire. I just laid wire, driving out. And I remember. I remember we were. Um, you know I, I remember we were stopped on top of a hill and we were having lunch in here. Something spooked the whole herd. There's only about 20 of them at the time. And they were like like, like hauling ass all over the place. And then here they ran toward the fence and we were like, oh no, they're gonna hit the fence. And the fence is six feet tall, sometimes eight in some places. We watched all 20 of those guys just jump straight over that fence. And I remember my, my my boss, he threw his shovel, or he threw his um, 
his not his shovel on postal digger. He threw it down and he goes like, What the hell are we building this fence for if they can just jump over it? He goes. I just remember we had we had to go get him too. Was it easy getting him back in? No. No, it wasn't because um they got mixed in with a bunch of cows and they wanna know why it wasn't easy? Why? How long were those buffaloes there? Probably like maybe just like four or five weeks or something like that's that. Why. It's early, yeah. That's why. Because oh. they're not settled. Yeah. So when you have a, okay, whether you there. bring, you have your core animals that know that this is where they're supposed to be. They get all their grass there. The hills, special hills they go on. Special places they drink their water. Oh, you know what's that? Trees, river. They know that's their place. Yeah, yeah. So we got 75 gates on our pasture. So if one gate is open somewhere, and they go through, there's ones that are settled in that pasture already for years, will always go back in. Hmm. You won't find those going down the road 30, 40 miles away because they're settled. They got everything right there. But hmm. somebody left the gate open, so they'll hang out maybe half mile, 100 yards from that gate. And then when you go check on them, you just, if you go right towards them, well, mine do, mine react to me. So when they see me coming, they know my vehicle. Yeah. And they know the speed or whatever the noise it's making that something's not right. And they they react and they just stick it, turn around and go right back in yeah, to where they're supposed to be. If it's a broken fence, I fix it. If the gate open, they're settled. Yeah. So their calves are the yearlings that we keep as replacements. Yeah. Their mom showed them already where yeah. to go that whole year, two years, whatever. Yeah. So they're settled in there. So those animals will never leave because they're settled to stay right there. That's their home. Yeah. But if you get animals from somewhere else, yeah. you bring them in, they don't know that they're supposed to stay there. Yeah. So when they get out, when you start chasing them around, it's a rodeo. Yeah. So that's, that's my opinion, I guess. It, no, it was hard. We had like, because even we had to go get another truck and then we had to like, um, yeah, we had to get more people to get them all back in. And, I, and they kept jumping all the time and then we'd lose them and then, yeah, anyway, yeah. it was rough. It's always good to get like um, young ones, like calves or yearlings. Oh, okay. Because as long as they have that first, you know, four or five wires, you know, the yeah. top wire is probably that high. And you got two, three, four or five wires, sometimes six. They'll respect that. As long as they got grass here, they got their salt here, their water here, they'll stay right here. Yeah. And they'll get, that'll be their home. They'll be settled. So, yeah. Tell them about how you care for them in the corral when, before you sell them. Oh, yeah. So, this table has eight um, corral compartments. So, imagine this table has eight equal sized compartments with water in there, tire tanks. And I put round bales in each one of them, like 10 feet apart. Round, 
around that whole square or rectangle pen. Then they got their own water tank. Then I put five types of salt around that water tank. Salt are they all, blocks. Are they all different or just five? They're all different. Oh, okay. So you might have a yellow block, a white block, a blue block, a tan block, a dark brown block. So each pen gets those five. Five, 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 five. And each pen has their round bills all the way around inside each pen, 10 feet apart. Mm. So you get a calf come out, let's say it's a yearling. And we have all our gates lined up the alley. Men that are manning, our women can be managing those gates. So I have my blowhorn on the top of my crow's nest. And I'm, I, I know everything that's going on around me, 360, because I'm high up. So I'll say, uh, yearling, pen six. And that noise travels all the way down to the guy's way down here. So automatically, he opens his gate, he opens his gate, he locks his gate, and he opens pen six's gate. So that yearling comes running out full speed, goes right to pen six, then he locks pen six. Then the next one comes in to the squeeze chute. It's a cow. The vet gives it a shot for deworming, preg tests it, reads this metal, uh, or it's a EID number, we have an inventory of each animal because mm. of the EID is specifically different for every animal. It's a little round button that Juan um, reads it. And so it's in there. I don't know all the terminology of science or whatever, but it's, it's in there, that wand stick. So they're able to take it out later that day or after they're done, after three days, and get it all printed out on a paper. So we get a printout of every buffalo that was worked if it was bread, if it was open, or whatever. And um, so let's say that cow, okay, we're done. So I'm on my microphone again. Straight through! And everybody hears that me say that, but it's louder. So he opens his gate, he opens his gate, he opens his gate. Buffalo comes out, runs up through all three gates, back up to the pasture. So each one gets a different pen based on its sex and its weight mm. that sounds impossible <laughs> it was prehistoric when we used to sit there with a one guy have a paper uh tablet actual, actual, paper, actual tablet. paper tablet and if he has shitty writing <laughs> the seven looks like or the eight looks like nine oh, what the hell is that? You know, you're like, oh, we got to have a better system. So we finally went to a tablet. A tablet? Yeah. And Jason, my uh, oldest sister's boyfriend, runs the tablet. And with Krista, huh? Krista. And uh, so they'll, they'll get the calf come in. They'll weigh it. Let's say it's uh, 415 pounds as a bull calf, right? So she'll document and the vet will say, tag number 23, so we know it's a bull. So she puts 23, 400 and what I say, uh, 15 pounds. And then it goes in the squeeze chute and they give it the shot. And so automatically we know I'm standing up there and I'm watching. And they'll say, pen one, or pen two, 
because that's the heavy bull side. So I'll just, I usually have Chris doing the microphone. Uh, you know, I don't have to do it no more, really. Unless she goes on break. She'll say, pen two. And so this guy right here, the first right in front of the squeeze chute, will open up pen two. Calf comes out, goes into pen two, he locks it. Because that's where the heavy bulls go, 410 pounds on up. So for pen two, we know the lightest calf, we know the heaviest calf, we know the average weight of every calf. Average weight of that whole pen. It could be 100 in there. So when the buyer says, how long has these been weaned? We could say, um, 15 days. And these are the weights when we worked them 15 days ago. So they know how much they shrunk because of stress, you know, weaning. So they're losing probably like 10% of their body weight until they come out of it. They start eating that grass. All those specifically placed round bales in the pen all the way around. So there's no, um, there's no uh, pecking order. Because each one has access to hay. Mm -hmm. There's not just one big bale in the middle yeah. where the big bull calves come in and push around the little bull calves. Mm -hmm. They all have access to hay in that whole big pen and water and salt blocks. I was going to say, is that why the salt blocks are out there too? Mm -hmm. That's to introduce them to getting their own salt, independence yeah. without their mom, drinking water. So when they get sold and they go to the ranch or wherever they're going to go, they already know that they're going to be alone. They know how to walk to get water. Wow. They know how to walk to get salt. Holy smoke. So he pretty much trains them or, or, or shows them what this is, what they're going to they're gonna expect whenever they leave. That's yeah. insane. Yeah. There was a white guy. Wow. His name was Adolf Pepper. He's dead now, but he used to lease a lot of this Indian land around here because we didn't have no... Um, money, no cattle, nothing. So Washichus, they get the land because they have access to, you know, resources, finance. And um, so Adolf Hepper brought his calves that fall to um, Mobridge Livestock. And uh, we were taking our calves there too, so ours were in the back with his separated though. So this guy was really bragging up Adolf Hepper, his white guy. Yeah, Adolf Hepper, he's been raising buffalo for 50 years. Yeah, some of the best, blah, 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 genetics, blah, blah, blah. You know, he's bragging them all up, right? Yeah. And the auctioneer says, oh, open the gate and let him in. So he opens that gate and these buffalo calves come in there, 9-0. Should I get the shade? they hit the other side of that. They're hauling ass. Yeah, they're hauling ass and they started trying to get out of there. They're jumping up against the wall like this. and They all go in there and then. He starts to bid, you know how auctioneer talks fast, and he's taking bids, whatever, and they brought this price, right? And then he's all done. That's what he got, per head. Then our calves came in, weaned like over two weeks. Ron Brothers calves, uh, average weight, because we knew all that stuff already. Average weight was this, lightest was this, heaviest was this, out of this pen, 113 bull calves. Open the gate. So they open the gate and our calves <laughs> trotted in a little bit, walked, went to the middle of the pen, looking around. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's with that grandma, remember? They put them all in there, close the door, start bidding. We got about almost $300 more per head 
than that white guy that had 50 years of experience. Wow. That's cool. That's cool. So it's all those little details that you got to do to get to that point. Right. So for me, I water them. I check on them every day. So when I go to the pens, when I walk through the pens along the alley, I purposely walk slow. Moving slow. I don't walk fast like like I'm crazy and stuff. I walk slow purposely. And if I have to climb over that fence to turn on the hydrant for the water, I move slowly. Purposely get my legs over, climb down. Purposely I walk slow to the hydrant. Pull it up slow. Water comes out. All those movements are telling those calves that he is not a threat. He's not here to eat me. He's not here to kill me. Because I'm walking slow. They get comfortable with me, with a human being. And that's just the way I treat them. And that reflects, because once they load out, when they get them, they said, man, these calves, they're... they're calm they're you know easy to work with they're not you know breaking their neck breaking their legs trying to escape yeah because of how i treat them right yeah and then that whole that whole process that you put in there or i mean you make it easy for them to grow is what, what i mean or not easy but you I mean you make it um they're adapting. Yeah, like make it, their ability to adapt. It's almost like you, you know how they're thinking. Mm-hmm. And so, because of that, you're able to. That's cool. So, what I really appreciate about what Ron is describing um, and how he cares for the calves is that he's taking this time and effort to watch his body movements for one thing. Like he said, it's it's all like purposeful movements so that the calves don't uh, become afraid of him and that they don't see him as a threat or see that he's coming in to harm them. It's almost like he's raising children. And he thinks about them so much that he helps them during this transition because they're going through a transition right now. So he is so mindful of them and so considerate of them that he does the things that he do, does to prepare them for what's going to happen next. That right there is very admirable. I mean, if I if I had a perfect world, we live in a perfect world, and all this land was mine. Yeah, I was gonna shoot, say, I just I just raise them, just and, raise and them, don't never don't send kill them. them. I'll kill the ones that help people eat. Yeah. Oh, really? But I won't have to sell them the way I was. I could give, you know, you want to start a herd in Pine Ridge, I'll give you 20 to help you. Because I have no bills to pay for land. Right. Interesting. How does it feel whenever whenever you see people like um, go shoot them for manhood ceremonies or whatever? whatever? For ceremonies? Mm Mm-hmm. That's what our people used to do in mm-hmm. you know, our culture. We had to kill them somehow. Right. So I prefer an animal to be shot once. So it doesn't suffer. And always have prayer involved. 
so that that family or the people that are going to eat off that animal is good. Yeah. So that's what I was taught. So that's what I do every animal I shoot. That that last one, whenever um, you were talking about what what's entailed whenever you go shoot the animal, and you were talking to Red Rock, and you're really you're really being stern with him and making sure that you know this what's going to happen and that he needs to be a sure shot. Yeah. And I, we were, we were just so proud to hear you say all those things because, like, we watch so many processings happen, where they're where they're doing like the, the ceremony in front of them and all this of, of all those animals. It's almost like they're like watching us do this fake thing, so that one of them will get killed. You know, it's 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 really like because um, it's really hard for us, for me anyway, to to watch these animals look upon us and they know that truck's there for one one or two reasons either they to feed him or to to shoot him like like that day we shot that one usually when you hunt bulls they'll be alone with the bulls the bulls yeah the cows will be way gone yeah. over there so they won't be all mixed like the way they were especially right now so a lot of the young ones they don't see these bulls getting taken out because they need to be managed because mm -hmm. I've had I have many stories of you know those old guys the older bulls just breaking gates just breaking gates that's they break a gate and they look at the other side and they say I like that side over there and I don't care I, I got an attitude so I'm gonna break this gate and they break it and then the younger bulls that are with them, they get to see that, and they get to go through. And man, we had a rough time for a couple years where they were doing that constantly, like every two or three days. Just for the hell of it, they'll break a fence just to get out in that field over there. I was like, what the heck, man? And it was bugging me, it was bothering me, and, and I was thinking, man, how do I manage these guys, you know? Yeah. I want to take care of them. You guys just stay put, get along. I'm okay. I'm, but if you guys keep breaking out, that puts me in a situation where I don't want to be in, but you're forcing me in. Yeah. So we start doing hunts. That allows us to bring income in. Yeah. Because we don't own the land. Right. I got to pay for fuel, for insurance, for everything. Yeah. Everything to run this place. It helps out. It supplements our um, cash flow. Yeah. And I kind of well, she choose. They like to when they shoot the animal, they like propping it up. Oh yeah. Put the gun there and like taking pictures. I'm just like you know inside here. I'm like this part of stuff I have to get used to. You know because they're bringing the money. I know they're using the meat for their families, mm -hmm. which is good. Mm -hmm. I like that. Uh, I have, you know, but the other parts I, I tolerate. That part of them. When they pose. Yeah, the yeah, I don't like that part. So frustrating for us too. So we just, I um. Can you explain to people listening right now what the process is when we harvest one of these tatanka? Sure. So when we go out to get a tatanka, we 
keep in mind, or I keep in mind, I should say, that you want these guys to not suffer. You mm-hmm. don't want them to suffer. So it's imperative that you take a, a single shot. And it's not going to happen all the time, but that should be the intention every time. It's really devastating when you can't get the one shot, but it's possible to get the one shot. There were times where I know that I couldn't take the shot and I took the shot anyway, and it was pretty heartbreaking because you don't want these guys to suffer more than what they should because they're already locked up in corrals, right? They're behind fences. So you don't want them to suffer even more, especially if you consider them a relative. So taking that one shot behind the ear, if the Tatanka is shot just right, his whole body will fall. Right. Because what you're doing is you're severing the spinal cord. So right behind the ear is the, the neck. The, in the neck, there's a bone. And that's what you're aiming for. So when you sever that, they go down pretty quickly. The all legs collapse and they fall and we go and bleed them out right away. Can you also explain why a headshot is taken versus a um, internal organ shot? So when we first started doing this um, or when somebody goes out and they're asked to... Um, shoot especially if they haven't shot before they're asked or told to shoot in the lungs so that way they know that they they get it but for us and the purposes behind a lot of the hunts it's to teach people how to um, identify a lot of the parts within the tatanka from head to tail so everything in between so taking that single shot behind the ear helps us to be able to show people how the lungs work. The heart without any trauma there in that location. So that people get a great idea of what the lungs look like, how big they are. We even inflate the lungs so that people can get an idea of how big these lungs can be when inflated. Can you see how people can see this as a an act of cruelty can i see yeah can you understand how some people see this as an act of cruelty i suppose so i mean you're taking a life from one thing but you also have to understand that this life that's being taken is appreciated the animals respected especially with the single shot because you're you're putting that out there that this guy is more than you, you know? So taking that one shot and making sure that the death is quick because of the purpose behind it and teaching people about him, you know, that's the best thing a person can do. But seeing it as being cruel, I guess if somebody goes out there with the intention of being a warrior over I want this guy to die as quickly as possible. That would be cruel. That would definitely be cruel. Because you're not putting that that tatanka, your relative, above yourself. 
we need to give our team a shout out. Going out to Jonathan Redow, he's our director of operations. To my wife, Lisa Mani Ironcloud, cultural foods educator. Give a shout out to AJ Grinelli, he's our farm manager. And our newest addition, Do Bad Warrior. She's the Ocheti Shakoni Food Systems Alliance manager. That's our team. Thank you guys very much again. A couple people we also need to acknowledge. And then also a shout out to our board of directors, Charles Eaglebull, Daryl Hernandez, Diana Lessert, Rose Frazier, and Erica Weston. Don't forget, we're also on several social media platforms. We have obviously the podcast, and you can find us on just about anywhere you find podcasts. We're on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and soon coming TikTok. Tell me your understanding of what a food system is in Rosebud. I could say right now, from the things that I see, it's getting better in terms of, you know, our own reclamation and ownership of it. Maybe ownership is a poor word choice, but, you know, just us taking control of it in a sense. That was Foster Knoyer Hogan. He is... He lives in Rosebud, South Dakota, and he is a fellow cultural foods person. So that's on our next episode for What is a Food System? Join us. We're going to be talking to our CEO, Nick Hernandez. We also have one of our board of directors, Rose Frazier, and my good friend, Luke Black Elk. So it's going to be an exciting one. Be sure to subscribe, check us out, follow us, like us, share us. Wopila.